Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library, Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. My name is Dan Galadner, and I'll be your host, along with Troy Eller-English, who will be running the laptop. Greetings. How you doing, Troy? I'm fantastic. How are you? Good, good. What, what, are, we, what are we doing today? Rise Up Detroit. Rise Up Detroit. That, it was a great interview. Um, another very cool podcast, folks. Uh, we are talking with Peter Blackmer, who is a research fellow at Wayne State University's Racial Equity Lab. But before that, he was the lead researcher for Rise Up North, which was created by Junius Williams, who is an educator and civil rights activist from Newark, New Jersey. Um, Rise Up North is a project that teaches lessons on the African-American experience in the nation's major urban centers in the North. Um, the project started in Newark and is now in the final stages here in Detroit. Peter was basically living in our reading room, going through all our documents, plus he was all over the Detroit area doing oral histories while our amazing staff was sitting there busy being scanning everything. Because basically what is being created is an online resource for our collections as well as other Detroit resources to tell the stories of resistance through written, oral, and visual materials from the pre-civil rights era in the black power movement in Detroit. So the website is up and is running, but there's still more content to be loaded. It's still being worked on. But um, listen, if you're a teacher, if you're a student, if you're teaching K through 12, even um, higher ed, you got to check out this website um, because it has great material in the 19 from 1960 to 1974. Um, the website is Rise Up Detroit, all one word, all lowercase, riseupdetroit.org. Um, also, if you want to check out the Newark version, it's riseupnewark.com. So let's get to it. <laughs> Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Oh, good, Dan. How about yourself? Wonderful. Wonderful. Excellent. Thanks for coming in. Um, really want to ask you, start off with, um, about Rise Up North Detroit. What is your mission, the goals? Where do you see this website going? Sure. So the, the start of the project came in Newark, New Jersey. This was the first chapter that we worked with. Um, and it came out of conversations between movement veterans, scholars, uh, and current activists who are concerned that the stories of black freedom struggles in the urban north aren't being told in a way that's accessible to the majority of communities where these histories were made. Uh, so coming out of Newark, we endeavored to build this project um, in an in a online fashion, educational website, modeled much after um, the SNCC Legacy Project and the work that they've done with Duke University to uh, really document, preserve, and present the histories of the Southern Civil Rights Movement as pertained to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the South. Uh, so the conversations then led to how do we do the same kind of project in the North, where the stories are a little different, the systems of oppression are a little bit more complex in terms of our collective understanding. And how do we do that in a way where the majority of communities can access this type of information? So that was the genesis of the project in Newark. And as we generated momentum in Newark, um, one of the larger visions for this project was to do this in other major cities. Um, Detroit was a logical next step because each city experienced the urban rebellion in 1967. So some of the questions that arose were, okay, well, what were 
the similarities and differences in Newark and Detroit leading up to the summer of 1967? And then how did the cities change afterwards? Um, so with Detroit as the next step, this is part of a, what we're envisioning as a national uh, collection of local studies of the civil rights and black power movements in the urban north so that once we present each of these case studies, each of these local studies, then we can start to draw conclusions and build analyses of what we're seeing across the United States in major urban centers, uh, particularly when it comes to black freedom struggles of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So what kind of similarities are you seeing between Newark and Detroit? One of the major issues in Newark leading up to the summer of 1967 was urban renewal. Um, this was a major problem in the, the Central Ward, which was the um, really the hub of black life in Newark uh, in the 1960s. And in the early 1960s, the, the city, state, and federal governments had kind of all conspired to locate a major medical school right in the heart of the Central Ward, which would have displaced uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of primarily African-American residents. Um, that was a major contention, not just because of the housing displacement, but also because of the perceived assault upon black political power in the city. Um, by displacing residents from their homes, this urban renewal project was also seen as displacing a major black voting block in a city that was nearing a black majority population at the precipice of an upcoming 1970 election, where it was many people had kind of set their sights on, here's our opportunity to finally have a black mayor in this city. Um, so the, the medical school project was seen as a direct target to that within the climate of the 1960s. Um, not to mention that this was a tax exempt institution that was going into a city that was likely to bring no benefits to the community in which it was being located, right? So that was something that I noticed very early on in the research that I was doing here at the Ruther was in terms of another medical school being placed in the heart of a black community with the medical campus, you know, just across the street, more or less from where we're sitting. Um, I've started learning more about this through copies of the Illustrated News, uh, Reverend Albert Clegg's newspaper, um, seeing time and time again throughout these issues as I'm going through about this struggle against the medical campus that was being placed. Um, and a lot of, I, I was seeing a lot of common analyses about urban renewal's relationships to black communities in northern cities. Um, not to mention this is coming after much of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley had already been destroyed. Um, so that is, that's a major similarity that I saw, but not just in the sense of urban renewal per se, but in the sense of a denial, an active denial of self-determination for black communities in northern cities. Uh, urban renewal being a prime example of uh, uh, city and state governments deciding what is going to take place within black communities without a seat at the table for the communities that are going to be most impacted by this development. Um, so using urban renewal just as an example, that's the major 
similarity, this denial of self-determination, um, and then repression that's layered on top of it through the police force um, in major cities, um, which through the research that we've done here at the Ruther and also through oral history interviews um, has been raised as the primary cause of the 1967 rebellion here in Detroit. Right. Right? We don't talk about as much. There ha People haven't talked about um, employment or housing or urban renewal as necessarily the primary factors because there was a black middle class that existed in Detroit that didn't exist to as great of an extent in Newark or other cities that the rebellion took place in. Um, so which has led many of our the folks that we've interviewed to say it has to be the police then. Hmm. Hmm. And that's you're talking about the Black Bottom, the Paradise Valley and the, the, the black middle middle class here in Detroit. And in your website, you kind of break it up in three sections in that the pre-World War II section. That kind of, that that is going to be something where it's showing the development of well the emigration of African Americans here to Detroit. Can you explain how Detroit built um, not built, but the African American community built within Detroit, creating this middle class? Sure. Um, so what? To, to touch upon kind of the just general layout of the site, the first part, this is in three chapters, the first part um, really being the emigration stories of different communities into Detroit. Um, so whether that is uh, uh, Polish or Irish or African-American, we want to really tell the stories of people coming to Detroit and the way that they were making the city, is trying to make the city in their image, whether that was in their local communities or on a larger scale, the city itself. Um, so in the second part, um, we're really looking at the post-war era, which is a such a fundamental aspect of understanding black freedom struggles in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s that often gets left out of popular understandings of the civil rights movement, right? We hear about, um, Brown v. Board, we hear about the Montgomery bus boycott, we hear about Emmett Till as kind of the three major progenitors of the civil rights movement in the South, but we don't as, you know, collectively really talk much about the roots of the civil rights movement during the post-war era. Um, so that's a critical aspect of this project in Detroit to understand the making of the city and African-American communities places within the city. Um, so a lot of the folks that we've talked to, uh, thinking about Elliot Hall and Helen Moore and Joanne Watson and many others who have been around the city and have some incredible stories to tell, um, have explained to us how, not just how this city was built and how um, various institutions of racism were incorporated within city structures and the city landscape, but then how that impacted black communities and how black communities responded to that kind of institutional racism, structural racism in the city. Um, so in terms of Black Bottom Paradise Valley, that recognition that there was this thriving, wonderful collective of black businesses and uh, entertainment venues, um, that really was, you know, quite impressive, but there's also the flip side that this was all because of segregation. It was forced 
you know, people, businesses, communities forced into particular areas and then you, you know, making the best of the situation. You know, reading about the history of Detroit, many people wrote, historians have written that Detroit was a city, a, a, a southern city with the segregation problems and Jim Crowism. Did you, are you finding anything that shows that being Detroit, a heavy labor uh, city, heavily influenced with UAW and AFL-CIO, do you see that labor tried to either uh, help African-Americans within Detroit to get to the middle class nirvana? Or it's like, or was there problems with this being a heavily, you know, segregated city? Those are some big questions. That's a big one. <laughs> is that too big? I mean, I can take. We no, can no, take no. That. That's fine. Okay. Um, I think that's a that's a both and kind of question. Particular. So it, particularly in Detroit, I'm I'm very much still learning this, the histories of this city um, as not a native Detroiter. Um, but it's important for us to know that these parts of the history to understand where that black middle class is coming from, right? With the gains of organized labor in uh, particularly the UAW with access to stable, if, you know, if brutal types of employment um, that was re primarily responsible for the black middle class that's arising in Detroit. But also, you know, as we look at the involvement of the Ruther brothers in the civil rights movement, right? In the early 1960s, seen as champions of the civil rights movement, marching with Dr. King in the Walk to Freedom in 1963. Um, you, you'll see photos throughout the Ruther's collections of the Ruther brothers, MLK and Horace Sheffield, other black labor leaders. Um, and we talk about them as, you know, great allies of the civil rights movement, labor as a, a institutional ally of the civil rights movement, but also we need to complicate that kind of understanding by also looking at the times when labor wasn't a great ally of the civil rights movement, right? Um, particularly when we come out of the rebellion and we're looking at the revolutionary union movements that the Ruther has such fabulous collections of, um, how black workers were understanding their place within the UAW, particularly um, within the shops, if, if you know, the, the primary issue being the lack of representation in uh, leadership positions within the unions, and then how black communities organized to gain a stronger foothold uh, in the unions in Detroit. Um, so we talk about uh, the, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and the various subsidiaries that were coming out of uh, the revolutionary union movements, whether that's Drum or Fromm or Elrum, um, we're talking about this organizing strategy to not just earn better wages, better working conditions for black workers, representation within uh, the various plants and factories, but really looking at that as a strategy to leverage the power of organized labor at the point of production for radical change, not just in Detroit, but nationwide. And this wasn't just, let's take it a little further. It, is not, it was not just with the labor organization, but after, after the rebellion in 67, there was the African-American community realized the power could be had politically and with a lot more things. Could you elaborate also about how the shift happened, accelerated shift happened? Yeah. Sure. And so that's 
those are some of the stories that we really try to focus on in the third part of the website, um, which we've titled, uh, for the sake of the project, New Directions in Black Power. Um, the big question is what really what you're asking is how what what changes, whether that's in collective consciousness or political organizing. Um, what, what did the political landscape of the city look like right after the rebellion? And some of the, the best information that can be gathered about that, to answer that question, is through oral histories of people that were there, not just observing, but active participants in this shift of collective consciousness, because there's this recognition, right, that something profound has just happened in the city in 1967, that this is something that is not just epochal for the city of Detroit, but recognizing the, that this is happening throughout the nation. This is a powerful moment. And there are so many that have been active on the ground in the years leading up to this uh, momentous rebellion that said this is an opportunity that we need to capitalize on. And through oral histories of folks with that, from that period, I'm thinking about Ron Scott particularly. Um, it really explains this shift in uh, collective consciousness after the rebellion. It's seen as all right, look, this, nobody wanted this violence to happen, but here we are, and now we need to mobilize. Because people are angry, this is a prime opportunity for us to build collective power in the city, to explore new directions. And because the city, the state, and the nation have proved so, so reticent to grant any demands for black self-determination before the rebellion, right? it, it, was, it was clear that what had previously been attempted wasn't working. And so more people were coming to this realization that we need new directions. We need to think about new ways of organizing. And, you know, this is also important to you know, put into a national context and perspective that the year before is when calls for black power first started emanating from the South with Willie Ricks and Stokely Carmichael in 1966. Um, the Black Panther Party is formed that year. So there's this national specter of an armed black revolution, which is not just you know, it, at once. It's empowering a black community um, in Detroit and throughout the nation. But at the same time, also drawing the gaze of city, state and federal law enforcement that are really wor working to not only make sense of this rising black militancy, but to suppress this rising black militancy, um, which we see throughout the nation. Um, but that's really kind of the, the broad uh, uh, outcome that, that we're trying to look at in that third part of the website. And you're finding this through the oral histories more than... The, I mean, the documentation is there, but the oral histories are really bringing a, a life to what you're talking about. Yeah. We have approached this, um, the producer of the project, Junius Williams, um, civil rights veteran in Newark for over 50 years, um, was in Selma in 1965, arrested there. He's been around, um, you know, for decades and has developed this rapport, not just in Newark, but throughout the nation. So when um, we started talking to folks out here in Detroit about the project, um, he had reached out to some of his old friends, his connections here to see if, you know, to gauge what interest there might be. People who are still leaders in 
uh, activist circles, or particularly in the fights for education, like Helen Moore um, or Joanne Watson. Um, once uh, Junius started re reaching out to these folks, the process was, who do we need to talk to to understand the histories of struggles for black empowerment in Detroit? So there's, we have a, a, a kind of a governing body, a board of partners, um, folks who we've been doing many of these interviews with who we'll check in with periodically. Um, we had a great meeting um, here at the Ruther Library to kind of give a, a brief demo of a first draft of the website just to demonstrate what the layout was, um, how this was going to look, because it's very different to talk to people about this kind of project and say, here's what we want to do right, with this. Right. It's a whole nother thing to actually show them what the project looks like and what these like what their stories look like within this particular medium online. I have to say, I, I, you sent me the link of the, the draft look. It looks amazing. Oh, thank you. And I can't wait to see it get launched, you know. And you're, what you're doing is you're incorporating the oral histories with the documents, with the photos. Yes. And that's a way of telling the story that's coming out of these oral histories and for the past. You know, you're the main researcher, though. So you're pulling all this stuff together, right? Yes. With, with help of some other people, of mm -hmm. course. Um, how, how has that been going? You're, you came into Detroit. You're doing research here at the Ruther Library. Have you found any fun, not fun, but very, yeah, take that back, very interesting wow-type documents that really propelled a part of your, the website or propelled your, your uh, research? Yeah, and there's been so many that, you know, we, we could sit here and talk. I mean, might have to go for a coffee run. <laughs> we could talk all day. But, yeah, some of the – me from my personal perspective um, and my, my, my research interests, some of the most interesting and impactful sources that are here at the Ruther is the almost entire run of the Illustrated News. Um, it's such a – unique and valuable resource um, to have an independent newspaper from a you know radical collective of organizers thinkers and activists like the Clegg brothers and uh, the organizations that they represented group on advanced leadership goal um, folks who are affiliated with Uhuru um, that is something that is not as readily accessible in other cities um, in Newark, there wasn't that kind of dedicated, independent um, activist news outlet that covered that kind of period from uh, the early, very early 1960s and up through the mid-1960s, uh, which is such a critical moment in Detroit's movement uh, development. And to use those resources for not just visual representations artifacts um, but for coverage of events that might have gone otherwise uncovered in the the major newspapers or covered in a different kind of way um, so whereas um, so let's let's take for instance the the protests against the Olympic Games that took place in 1963 right if we were to look at the newspaper coverage of that we are going to get a very different story than perhaps the, what we would find in the illustrated news coverage of that because we're not just getting here's what happened but here's the justification behind this protest here is an analysis from a a radical 
black perspective about what took place. Um, and then at the same time, you know, speaking more broadly, just having the access to this kind of publication that is essentially cataloging black radical thought in the early 1960s in Detroit is invaluable um, because that is a central aspect of our project to not just look at actions, but the ideas that are undergirding and influencing these actions and, organi and organizing efforts to actually have a catalog of the evolution of Reverend Clegg's thought and his analysis of different uh, uh, issues that are taking place in the city, whether that's uh, housing or education or urban renewal, um, that, that preserved analysis is invaluable for our, for our purposes because that's what we want to make readily accessible to future organizers, to students, teachers, to, un to really understand not just the movement for its actions, but for its ideas and how those ideas can inform uh, our current political landscape and how we are organizing today and thinking about um, uh, the broader institutions of structural racism. So you mentioned teachers and students. Are, uh, there's going to be a curriculum guide along with this website, so teachers, students can really dig deep dives into this website and take something out of critical thinking about what's happening? Absolutely. And that's been a, a primary objective of, of ours in this project, um, because where we're coming from in this is we don't want to just put this website out into the world and let people find it as they will, but how do we use this new resource that's coming out as a, a, a really institutionalize this kind of resource within classrooms, within community settings? And I was really excited to hear about um, the efforts that Kristen and Megan have been putting together to build the, the primary source lab here at the Ruther and bringing in teachers, bringing in uh, students to really engage and get their hands on some of these documents and learn about primary source analysis. Um, so that, when, when, I, when Megan and, and Kristen told me about that, I was really excited because that's what we've been trying, that's what we did in Newark. We put together a curriculum. Uh, it was accepted by the Newark Public School District. Um, it's now being implemented in some of the other schools there as well. Um, um, but that is our next step, is working with teachers and students to develop a, an effective curricula um, for students in the city of Detroit to more prominently center the city's histories, predominantly because we're talking about a city with a population, of, uh, with an African-American population of 80% of the total city population. Any history that's taught about the city of Detroit needs to prominently locate African-American history within this city. Um, so that's where we're moving to with this project is making sure that we are bringing teachers to the table um, to help us to help collaborate on a curricula that's going to be uh, innovative but also effective. I look forward to it. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. Thanks a lot, Peter. All right. Thank you, Dan. All right. And that was Peter Blackmer um, talking to us about Rise Up Detroit. Uh, please, folks, check out the website, riseupdetroit.org, all lowercase, one word. Uh, there's lots of primary documents on there, photographs, oral histories, interviews, videos that you can download. And I understand that there'll be people are creating lesson plans as we speak. So anyway, thanks a lot, folks. Wow, wow, wow.
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Do it again. Not your best work. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Yeah, start at the beginning of the sentence. That's a long sentence. It's all the way over here. Ah, damn. (laughs) I I, I don't have to be anywhere for an hour, so I can do a lot of flubs. Oh, good. See you next time. Adios. Heading to the beach. A theater saying. Shalom.